Turn your copy of God's Word to Peter's first letter, the first epistle of Peter, chapter 1. The reading of the will. Maybe you've never been to one. Perhaps you've seen the reading of the will on a television show or a movie, or perhaps you've imagined it as you read a chapter in a book. The family, the relatives, anyone who expects to be involved in the distribution of the inheritance, they gather around in the judge's chamber or perhaps the lawyer's office, and the will is read. It's an exciting time. It's an anxious time. It is a life-changing time for some folks. That's what we do every Sunday. We read the will. We call out the distributions that come from the hand of God to the people of God. That's one of the reasons we're here every Sunday, to read the will so that the children of God, that all of you can know what your inheritance in Christ Jesus really is. My job every Sunday is to take you by the hand and to walk off the acres, to walk off the whole ranch so you can see exactly what you have received through Christ. There's some people who don't show up for the reading of the will. Where are they this morning? We're reading the will. The room ought to be packed. The anticipation ought to be out the windows. Don't people realize this morning we're reading the holy will from Peter's first epistle? Some people don't show up for the reading of the will because they think they're going to be embarrassed. Maybe they're thinking to themselves, everybody else is going to get something when they read the will, but I'm not going to get anything. They won't call my name. It's going to be embarrassing, so I just won't show. Or other people are afraid they're going to be excluded. If not embarrassed, maybe excluded. Maybe their lack of status. In ancient Israel, a widow didn't need to show up to the reading of the will because she was going to get nothing. Zilch, nada. She could sit there all day long, but when they read the ancient Israelite wills, her name would not be called. Her problem was she was a woman in a patriarchal society. Well, the daughters of a man had no need to show up either because the goods of the family passed down through the menfolk. So if you're a daughter of Israel in antiquity, no need to show up for the reading of the will. You would not hear your name called. Some people don't show up because lack of, of status. When we read the will on Sunday morning, some folk think that they shouldn't come to church because they think God won't include them. They'll be left out. There are nobody, no need to be in the room. But I think about that passage in the prophetic book of Isaiah, Isaiah 56, where the Lord says, I do not want the foreigners to say, I do not have a place amongst the people of God. I do not want the eunuch to say that I am a dead tree. The day is coming, says the Lord. The day is coming when the stranger, the alien, the foreigner, the transient will all have a place in my house. The way things happen in our world, the benefactor gets to dole out, to give out his or her worldly worth in any way he or she might deem appropriate. There are really some strange things, you know, when it comes to wills. Some people don't show up to reading the will because it's a time when the benefactor can actually get spiteful toward the family. 
It's a time when the dead get the last word. And wills can be changed. They can be changed upon a whim and changed and changed and changed again. I saw a cartoon that depicted a man, his whole family's waiting on him. Can I pour you some more tea, Daddy? Do you need your, your shoulders rubbed, Daddy? Can I help you, Daddy? Can I fluff your pillow, Daddy? The caption of the cartoon said that life had never been better for Mr. Jones since he took on the policy of now rewriting his will every single week. It's that way sometimes. There are some bizarre cases when it comes to wills. Not only did Gunther the dog literally get millions of dollars, which he left to his son, Gunther the fourth. Well, I found an industrialist in 1947 whose will read this way. To my wife, I leave her lover and the knowledge I wasn't the fool she thought I was. <laughs> to my son, I leave the pleasure of earning a living. For 25 years, he thought the pleasure was mine, but it wasn't. <laughs> to my daughter, I leave $100,000. She will need it. The only piece of business her husband ever did was to marry her. To my valet, I leave all the clothes he's been stealing from me from 10 years and also the fur coat he wore last winter when I was in Palm Beach. To my partner, I'll leave a suggestion he take on some clever man quickly if he expects to do any more business now that I'm dead and gone. In fact, in a book where there's a will, there's a way, records an outlandish man in Boston who died and left his wife penniless unless she remarried within the next five years. Why something like that? The reason, he said, for the proviso was he wants somebody else to see exactly how hard she was to live with. <laughs> he wants somebody else to go, go through what he had gone through. A monstrous re revolution, a revelation, a post-mortem spy. Well, the will found in 1 Peter is not spiteful. And the room is filled to the rafters, I imagine, as this church is there gathered, this churches of Asia Minor, as a, as a letter came to them, they were all there to hear the reading of the first letter by the Prince of the Apostles, Peter. The room was crowded, and everybody waits and wonders, what is God going to leave his children? It's here in First Peter, like those folk, we too come to hear our name called, as we hear God's inheritance. We wait anxiously, anxiously this morning as a people of God to see exactly what we've inherited. So this morning, get on the edge of your seat for the words of none other than Peter himself as he reads the will. Look at verse 3. Blessed be the God. Now, the Jewish culture, whenever you say the name God, you, you follow it with this benediction. Blessed be God. Blessed be God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Even as the reading of the will begins, we can tell there's something unbelievable, something wonderful that awaits the people of God. He begins with this benediction to God, blessed be the God. And notice, he is the father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Those words themselves are the only words that matter in humanity, our Lord Jesus Christ. 
When we, the redeemed, call the rabbi Jesus our Lord, we know we are saved from our sins. We are saved from the clutches and the power of death. And we gladly acknowledge the incarnate Christ, Christ in the flesh. So we call him Lord. We gladly give him our obedience. Notice how it comes to verse 3, his great mercy. As God looks upon the miserable, God looks upon us, and God has mercy upon us. And then our inheritance begins, notice that we are born again. It sounds like the Johannine literature, doesn't it? That we are revitalized. We are born anew. We are a new creation in Christ. We have a participation as the born-again people. We are born again to what? We are born again to a living hope. And how do we have that hope, verse 3? Through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. God has defeated death and the resurrection of his son, Christ Jesus. The tomb of the Christ was empty. This hope stands in contrast to the empty and frustrating, deceptive, false hopes of this world. And trials, we'll see in 1 Peter, trials and tribulations come upon this community. But despite the trials and tribulations, they have a living hope in the empty tomb of Jesus. You know, you can live about 40 days without food. Thus, Jesus fasting for 40 days. You can go about eight days without water. You can go about four minutes without air. But you can only live a few seconds if you don't have any hope. We are born again to a living hope. A living hope found in Jesus. Hope is the stuff of life, isn't it? It keeps the farmer on the tractor. It keeps the prisoner alive. It keeps the student in the books. It has the patient watching and longing for the sunshine of the morning. Hope fills present sacrifices with joy and, and keeps us at a worthy task, even though the rewards are small and those who say thank you are few. The hope of the Christian is not whistling in the dark. It's not activated by spring flowers, but rather our living hope is found in nothing less than the resurrection of the cosmic Christ. His tomb is empty. Well, notice some things about our inheritance. Notice first of all, we obtain an inheritance, and then he describes this inheritance. This is the reading of the will. We have living hope in the empty tomb of Jesus, and we have an inheritance. What kind of inheritance, Peter, do we have? First of all, it's imperishable. That means it's incorruptible. It is death-proof, you might say. The idea of the word here is a, a, it cannot decay. There will be no dissolution of our inheritance. It will not go away at death. Make no mistake about it, the crowning work of God is the empty tomb of his son. Crucified on the cross for our sins, the women come to anoint the body. And when they arrive on the third day, they find there is no body in the tomb. Our inheritance is absolutely death-proof, the thing that we fear the most. And what if the tomb of Jesus is not empty? The Apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, without the empty tomb of Christ, there is no hope. You are a hopeless people. You are still in your sins. You're a pitiful people. And we've made God to be a liar if Christ is not resurrected from the dead. 
our belief about God is a resurrection belief. It is absolutely death proof. But it, not only that, it's, notice it's sin proof. Notice, obtain inheritance, which is first of all imperishable, and second of all, it's undefiled. It is sin proof. To defile means to paint or to stain, to change the color of something. It's good to know that our eternal salvation wrought not because of anything we have done, but because of what God has done in our Christ, it is absolutely sin-proof. It is unsusceptible to any stain that we might cause it because it is based upon the Christ and who He is and not who we are. Thirdly, I want you to notice it's, it's time-proof. Notice it is undefiled and will not fade away. It will not fade away. It is time proof. The word here in the Greek text is only used here, only the New Testament right here. This one word, only time it ever appears in the New Testament. It's the image of a flower that never fades. Every time we, we go out, we purchase a flower or a, a blooming tree, you want to know, is it just once a season or does it bloom all summer long? Or how often do the blooms come around? And well, imagine a, a plant that always has a bloom. It always is blooming our salvation, our inheritance. It is absolutely time-proof. It will not diminish. It will not fade away. The attractiveness of what God has left for you is that it is absolutely time-proof. Finally, I want you to notice it's reach-proof. It is reserved for you in heaven. Your inheritance is certain, because of God's watchful care, is absolutely immune from all the disasters that befall us. It can't be stopped by 9-11. It can't be stopped by a pandemic that catches us all by surprise. For it is not even placed on earth. Our inheritance is reserved for us and ultimately the heavenly kingdom of God. It is literally beyond the reach of the powers of death and destruction. But there's even better news in verse 5. It is reserved for, in heaven for you. And who are you? You who are protected by the power of God through the faith for a salvation ready to be revealed at the last time. We are guarded, he says. We are protected. We are kept. It's a, it's a military term here. We are protected from our enemies by the very power of God. Now we find out as we read along that this Asian minor community in the first century was going through some hard times. Notice verse 6. And this you greatly rejoice, even though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been distressed by various trials. You see those Gentile believers in these Asian communities, these Asian churches, they had accepted a story of a rabbi who was crucified and resurrected. It was a story of hope and a story of joy and a story of grace and a story of forgiveness. And they were absolutely perplexed that accepting so much good news, they were going through trials and tribulations. And the time this is written in the mid-60s, Nero was the emperor over Rome. He's beginning to persecute the people of God, literally throwing them to the lions and using them as living torches to illuminate his garden parties. It was an awful time for these Gentile believers who accepted a God of hope, and now we're going through various trials. And so 
Peter tries to tell them. Notice verse 8, though you have not seen him, you love him, and though you do not see him now, you believe in him. And you greatly rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory, obtaining as the outcome of your faith the salvation of your soul. He tells them in verse 7, it's like the refiner's fire are suffering. It purifies, it removes the dross. We are being tested indeed by fire. There is no suffering that is more difficult than unexplained suffering. The most terrible pain of all is uninterpreted pain and suffering. So Peter tells them to see their trials, verse 7, as having a refiner's fire, a purifying effect. And then he asks them to join in the chorus of praise resulting in one great doxology at the appearing of Christ Jesus. And then he tells them, You have not seen him, but you love him, and you have not seen him, but you believe in him. Do you remember when the resurrected Christ first enters the room where the disciples are gathered? And everybody is there, everybody except Thomas. And Thomas says, I will not believe unless I see, unless I touch, unless I feel the nail prints of his hand, the spear in his side. I will not believe Exactly a week goes by, and Thomas is gathered with the other disciples this time. He refuses to believe the reports of the resurrected Jesus. And then Christ enters again and says, Thomas, come here. Do you need to touch my wrist? Do you need to feel the gash in my side? And then Jesus says to Thomas, you believe me because you have seen. But blessed are those who have not seen and yet believe. Even so, Peter, himself having seen the Christ, says to his readers as new converts from the Gentile community, you have not seen him, but you love him, and you do not see him now, but you believe in him. And they rejoice, look at verse 9, obtaining as the outcome of your faith, your belief, the salvation of your souls. We have an inheritance. It's inheritance It begins with the new birth by the power of the empty tomb of Jesus. And it is imperishable. It is undefiled. It will not fade away. It is reserved for us in heaven. Imagine that first century church as a letter traveled from one of these communities of Asia Minor to the next. They all gathered around. The word got out. They're going to read the will in the first chapter of the letter. Strangers were there, I, I imagine, and exiles and nobodies and slaves and women and everybody was there. They had become all excited. The will's been kept guarded in heaven, unlock the key, and, and nobody can change the will. Its value will never go down. Its will is unchangeable, unlike human wills. They're confident that Peter's going to take them by the hand and walk off the whole ranch so they can see the riches that God has given in his love and grace. And maybe the reader gets up that first reading of this will and it says, first of all, there's no silver or gold here in Peter's letter. If that's what you come for, you're out of luck. 
This is church, you know. There's, there's no silver or gold handed out here. The inheritance is salvation and new birth and resurrection and hope and mercy and security and joy and peace. What a good word. To obtain as the outcome the salvation of your souls. You know other people that probably should have been here this morning for the reading of the will. They don't come to church because they don't think they themselves are worthy of getting anything. Do you know some people this morning perhaps who have excluded themselves from the reading of the will? Say to them this week, you know, we read the will last Sunday in church and your name was called out when we read the will, but you weren't here, but I heard your name. I was sure I heard your name. It was right there in the list. And they're going to read the will again next week because that's what they do every single week. They declare the inheritance of the people of God who have said yes to the Lordship of Jesus. There's nothing like hearing your name called out, is there? No, he's included me. He's included you. That he loved us that much that he gave his son to die on the cross in our place to bear our sins. And in the power of the resurrection, he says, if you die with me, likewise you will rise with me. Hear your name like that. Nothing like it in all the world, is there? I hope you heard your name this morning. For what Peter has said to you is, Child, in Christ, this is yours. Let us pray. Oh God, Thank you for reminding us of things beyond this physical realm. Thank you for declaring through Peter's writing the living hope that we inherit. It cannot be taken away. Oh God, I pray this morning perhaps there's someone who's never made that step of faith to say, I trust Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior. And today would be her day or his day to say yes to Jesus. Maybe there are others, oh God, who are called to be a part of this great church. This would be their day to come and join us in all of our missions and ministries that start right here in Amarillo, try to reach out to the whole world with the living hope of being born into your kingdom. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.